Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of The Cold Vault. This week, we are going to be looking at how cults can function on smaller scales. Not smaller in terms of the damage and abuse they inflict, but smaller on the amount of people operating within its walls. Dee grew up in a Catholic household, but this wasn't a typical Catholic household. Dee's parents were extremely devout, and Dee even had an aunt who was in the process of becoming a saint. She has churches and worship statues made in her name, This has caused Dee's parents to try and live up to ludicrous expectations. Today's episode is about a cult inside another movement, ideals and beliefs taken so far by parents that they caused physical, emotional and psychological damage to the children involved. A quick trigger warning before we get into things. As I mentioned in the introduction, there are themes of abuse in this episode, so do listen with discretion. Also, I'd like to welcome our very special new patron, Megan, into the fold. Thank you so much for joining up to my Patreon and deciding to support my content. I appreciate it so much, Megan, and I really look forward to delivering you more exclusive content. During this episode, you're going to hear a very in-depth interview between myself and Dee. Before that, I wanted to start this episode by giving a brief background on narcissism. Dee requested that we delve into how narcissism and cults are linked. Let's start by looking at an article posted on psychcentral.com titled 14 Ways Narcissists Can Be Like Cult Leaders, written by Dan Newharth. The tactics some narcissists use to get their way in personal relationships can be strikingly similar to the coercive tactics used by destructive cult leaders. If you have a spouse, family member, friend or boss who is narcissistic, Ask yourself whether any of the following 14 characteristics of destructive cults parallel your relationship with the narcissist. Number one, cult leaders act larger than life. They are viewed as innately good, possessing special wisdom, answering to nobody, and nobody is above them. Number two, cult members' rights are subjugated for the good of the group, the leader, or the cause. Members are told that what the cult wants them to do is for their own good, even if it is self-destructive. Number three, an us-versus-them attitude prevails. Outsiders are viewed as dangerous or enemies. This turns members' focus outward, reducing the chances they will spot problems within the cult. In addition, viewing others as enemies is used to justify extreme actions because of the dangers that outsiders pose. Number four, 
the leader or cause becomes all important. Members devote inordinate amount of time to the leader and the group, leaving little time for self-care or reflection. Number five, feelings are devalued, minimised or manipulated. Shame, guilt, coercion and appeals to fear keep members in line. Members are led to discount their instincts and intuition and told to seek answers from the leader or cult teachings. Over time, members can lose touch with their previous habits and values. Number six, questioning and dissent are not tolerated. Having doubts about the leader or cult is considered shameful or sinful. Members are told that doubts or dissent indicate something wrong with the member. Number seven, the ends justify the means. The rightness of the leader or cult justifies behaviour that violates most people's standards for ethics or honesty. In the middle of the cult, anything goes. Number eight, closeness to the cult and leader is rewarded while distance is punished. Temporary ostracism is used to punish behaviour that doesn't conform to group rules. Members fear being estranged from the group and losing their identities and the benefits of group membership. Number nine, cult members are on an endless treadmill of becoming. Only the cult leader is considered perfect. All other members must strive to emulate the leader. Most cults are set up so that members can never achieve this perfection, which keeps them dependent. Number 10. Lies are repeated so often they seem true. The cult leader cannot be wrong and never needs to apologise. Number 11. Cult leaders enrich themselves at members' expense. Members are encouraged or coerced into gratifying the leader's needs by giving up time, money and more. Number 12. Communication is coercive or deceptive. Things are not always what they seem. This fosters confusion, leaving members vulnerable. When confused, they seek solace from the aura of certainty the leader seems to possess. Number 13. Sameness is encouraged. Certain kinds of appearance, behaviour and cult terms and language become the norm for members. Over time, members come to identify themselves as part of an entity rather than as individuals. Number 14. Doing what the leader wants is presented as the path to enlightenment or happiness. In time, this leads members to give up their old habits and norms. They live in a bubble, filtering out information that might weaken their resolve. The article goes on to say, Cults and narcissists use powerful forms of manipulation, but there is nothing magical about what they do. Understanding their methods can allow you to avoid being taken in. If someone is narcissistic, be mindful of sharing personal information with that person as it may be used against you. In any adult relationship, you have the right to confront, prevent or remove yourself from manipulation or coercive control at any time. You do not need to give a reason and you do not need the other person's permission. In any adult relationship, you have the right to ask questions, make your own decisions and honour your own values and goals. Nobody has the right to tell you what to think or how to feel. Another article on Psychology Today, titled 10 Signs of a Narcissistic Parent, written by Preston Nee, reads, quote, If my son doesn't grow up to be a professional baseball player, I'll shoot him. Anonymous father. Quote, Aren't you beautiful? Aren't you beautiful? You're going to be as pretty as mummy. Anonymous mother. Quote, My father's favourite responses to my views are, but, actually, and there's more to it than this. He always has to feel like he knows better. Anonymous daughter.
A narcissistic parent can be defined as someone who lives through, is possessive of, and or engages in marginalising competition with the offspring. Typically, the narcissistic parent perceives the independence of a child, including adult children, as a threat, and coerces the offspring to exist in the parent's shadow with unreasonable expectations. In a narcissistic parenting relationship, the child is rarely loved just for being herself or himself. Numerous studies have been conducted on the subject of narcissistic parenting and its impact on offspring. It's important to distinguish certain parent-centric tendencies from chronic narcissistic parenting. Many parents want to show off their children, have high expectations, may be firm at times, such as when a child is behaving destructively, and desire their offspring to make them proud. None of these traits alone constitute pathological narcissism. What distinguishes the narcissistic parent is a pervasive tendency to deny the offspring, even as an adult, a sense of independent selfhood. The offspring exists merely to serve the selfish needs and machinations of the parent. How do you know when a parent may be narcissistic? The following are 10 telltale signs with references from my books, How to Successfully Handle Narcissists and A Practical Guide for Narcissists to Change Towards the Higher Self. While some parents may exhibit a few of the following traits at one time or another, which might not be a major issue, a pathologically narcissistic parent tends to dwell habitually in several of the following personas, while remaining largely unaware of or unconcerned with how these behaviours affect one's offspring. Number one, uses or lives through one's child. Most parents want their children to succeed. Some narcissistic parents, however, set expectations not for the benefit of the child but for the fulfillment of their own selfish needs and dreams. Instead of raising a child whose own thoughts, emotions and goals are nurtured and valued, the offspring becomes a mere extension of the parent's personal wishes with the child's individuality diminished. Quote, My mum used to love dolling me up in cute dresses even though I was a tomboy by nature. I think she felt that when I received compliments for my appearance, she looked good in reflection. It boosted her self-worth. Anonymous. Quote, you have opportunities I've never had. After you become a doctor, you can do as you please. Until then, you do as I say. Father to son in Dead Poets Society. Number two, marginalisation. Some narcissistic parents are threatened by their offspring's potential promise and success. As they challenge the parent's self-esteem, consequently, a narcissistic mother or father might make a concerted effort to put the child down so the parent remains superior. Examples of this type of competitive marginalisation include nitpicking, unreasonable judgement and criticisms, unfavourable comparisons, invalidation of positive attitudes and emotions and rejection of success and accomplishments. The common themes through these put-downs are there's always something wrong with you and you'll never be good enough. By lowering the offspring's confidence, the narcissistic parent gets to boost his or her own insecure self-worth. Quote, I pleaded with my mother on the phone for the lab fee of my college science class. She finally agreed to pay, but only after saying that it was a waste of money on me. Anonymous. Number three, grandiosity and superiority. Many narcissistic parents have a falsely inflated self-image with a conceited sense about who they are and what they do. Often, individuals around the narcissist are not treated as human beings but merely tools or objects to be used for personal gain. Some children of narcissistic parents are objectified in the same manner, while others are taught to possess the same false superiority complex. 
we're better than they are. This sense of grandiose entitlement, however, is almost exclusively based on superficial, egotistical and material trappings attained at the expense of one's humanity, conscientiousness and relatedness. One becomes more superior by being less human. Number four, superficial image. Closely related to grandiosity, many narcissistic parents love to show others how special they are. They enjoy publicly parading what they consider their superior dispositions, be it material possessions, physical appearance, projects and accomplishments, background and membership, contacts in high places, and or trophy, spouse and offspring. They go out of their way to seek ego-boosting attention and flattery. For some narcissistic parents, social networking is a wonderland where they regularly advertise how wonderful and envy-worthy their lives are. The underlying messages may be, I am, or my life is, so special and interesting, and look at me, I have what you don't have. Quote, what my mother displays in public and how she really is are very different. Anonymous. Number five, manipulation. Common examples of narcissistic parenting manipulation include guilt trip. I've done everything for you and you're so ungrateful. Blaming. It's your fault that I'm not happy. Shaming. Your poor performance is an embarrassment to the family. Negative comparison. Why can't you be as good as your brother? Unreasonable pressure. You will perform at your best to make me proud. Manipulative reward and punishment. If you don't pursue the college major I chose for you, I will cut off my support. Emotional coercion. You're not a good daughter or son unless you measure up to my expectations. A common theme running through these forms of manipulation is that love is given as a conditional reward rather than the natural expression of healthy parenting. On the other hand, the withholding of love is used as a threat and punishment. Number six, inflexible and touchy. Certain narcissistic parents are highly rigid when it comes to the expected behaviours of their children. They regulate their offspring in minor details and can become upset when there's deviation. Some narcissistic parents are also touchy and easily triggered. Reasons for irritation towards an offspring can vary greatly, from the child's lack of attention and obedience to perceived faults and shortcomings, to being in the presence of the parent at the wrong time, etc. One reason for the parent's inflexibility and touchiness is the desire to control the child. The narcissist responds negatively and disproportionately when she or he sees that the offspring will not always be pulled by the strings. Quote, I hate it when you put groceries on the checkout counter that way. I told you before, I hate it. Mother to daughter in a supermarket. Number seven, lack of empathy. One of the most common manifestations of a narcissistic father or mother is the inability to be mindful of the child's own thoughts and feelings and validate them as real or important. Only what the parent thinks and feels matters. Children under this type of parental influence over time may respond with one of three survival instincts. They may fight back and stand up for themselves. They may flight and distance from their parents. They may begin to freeze and substitute their invalidated real self with a false persona playing a role thus adopting traits of narcissism themselves. Number eight, dependency or codependency. Some narcissistic parents expect their children to take care of them for the rest of their lives. This type of dependency can be emotional, physical and or financial. While there's nothing inherently wrong with taking care of older parents, it's an admirable trait. The narcissistic parent typically manipulates an offspring into making unreasonable sacrifices with little regard for the offspring's own priorities and needs. 
Quote, my mum, a single parent in her late 30s, expects me to support her financially on an ongoing basis. She says that she can't live without me. Some narcissistic parents may also manoeuvre their adult children into codependency. Psychology professor Sean Byrne defined a codependent relationship as one where one person's help supports or enables the other's underachievement, irresponsibility, immaturity, addiction, procrastination or poor mental and physical health. Number nine, jealousy and possessiveness. Since a narcissistic mother or father often hopes that the child will permanently dwell under the parent's influence, she or he may become extremely jealous at any signs of the child's growing maturity or independence. Any perceived act of individuation and separation from choosing one's own academic and career path to making friends not approved by the parent to spending time on one's own priorities are interpreted negatively and personally. Why are you doing this to me? In particular, the appearance of a romantic partner in the adult offspring's life may be viewed as a major threat and frequently responded to with rejection, criticism and or competition. In the eyes of some narcissistic parents, no romantic partner is ever good enough for their offspring and no interloper can ever challenge them for dominance of their child. Quote, how dare that woman take my son away from me? Who does she think she is? And number 10, neglect. In some situations, a narcissistic parent may choose to focus primarily on her or his self-absorbing interests, which to the narcissist are more exciting than child raising. These activities may provide the narcissist with stimulation, validation and self-importance she or he craves, be it a career obsession, social flamboyance or personal adventures and hobbies. The child is left either to the other parent or on his or her own. Quote, my husband's an absent father. He's always off doing something fun for himself, which he prefers to spending time with our child. He's an extremely selfish person. Lastly, before we get into Dee's interview... Here is a page titled The Impact of Growing Up with a Narcissistic Parent on the Awareness Centre website that reads The Impact of Growing Up with a Narcissistic Parent Imagine a mother who seems like the perfect parent out in public but who rages and screams at her children and husband at home when they displease her or a father who deliberately makes his kids feel confused by telling them something didn't happen when it objectively did invalidating their experiences and helping them learn they can't trust themselves. They are both examples of parents who have narcissistic traits. Like many personality traits, narcissism is normally distributed among the population, meaning that most people fall somewhere along the middle of the spectrum. While only a few reach the extremes, pathological narcissism in the form of narcissistic personality disorder is actually quite rare impacting only 1% of the population, according to Psychology Today. Being raised by a narcissistic parent gives rise to the belief, I am not good enough. Generally, narcissistic parents are possessively close to their young children. Their children are seen as an extension of themselves and become a source of self-esteem for the parent. Look at how perfect my children are. Didn't I do a good job? The children become a means to gain attention from others. The children learn to fit into the moulds that their parents create for them. And this can lead to anxiety for the child who constantly pushes aside their own personality in order to please the parent. Who constantly pushes aside their own personality in order to please the parent. The child of a narcissistic parent must adhere to the parent's agenda in order for their life to be stable. Asserting their own feelings or thoughts can lead to problems with the parent that might include anger, tears or punishment. Through this, the child learns that their feelings and thoughts are unimportant, invalid and inconsequential 
and will often stifle their own feelings in order to keep peace in the home. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Narcissists aren't always cruel. They can very often be kind, but this kindness almost always comes with conditions. The child will often come to understand that their parents' kindness leads to them feeling beholden to their parent. Whether it is overt or covert, the sentiment, if I do this for you, you owe me, always comes with acts of kindness. Kindness and love are conditional. A narcissist's behaviour can be difficult to handle at the best of times. So for a child, it can feel extremely unpredictable and unsettling. Young children can't just get up and leave their family, so they nurture hope by sacrificing their own self-esteem and blaming themselves. The child internalises the belief that they are the problem. If I was better at this or that, then my parent would love me more. The parent's own belief that they are the perfect parent only compounds this belief, as they believe that any resistance or negativity that they experience from the child is the child's fault. How can you move forwards? There are many different ways that you can move forwards and heal from being raised by a narcissistic parent. 1. Recognise. As with anything, the first step is awareness. We can't move on until we know what has caused us pain. If you are reading this article, then it is probable that you suspect that one of your parents had narcissistic traits or narcissistic personality disorder. Study. Educate yourself about NPD and the impacts that it can have on the family system. Scour the internet, read textbooks and talk to therapists who understand narcissism. 3. Recount your experiences. This exercise can be difficult so I would definitely recommend that you get some support with it. For each sign and symptom of NPD, recall and write down your own experiences from childhood or adulthood that match. For each of these memories, the narrative needs to be rewritten with a new dialogue of my parent is a narcissist and is treating me this way because of that. There is no blame in this new dialogue, not for you, and not for your parent. This is a way of reframing your experiences in the light of new information and extricating the blame from yourself. Identity. During the previous step, it is highly likely that some abusive, traumatic and neglectful behaviour on the part of the narcissistic parent becomes evident. As painful as it might be, you will likely be able to identify emotional abuse and neglect like guilt-tripping or manipulating, and even psychological abuse like gaslighting or the silent treatment. You might also find examples of physical abuse, financial abuse, neglect or excessive gift-giving. It can be extremely helpful to work through these memories with a counsellor. 5. Grieve There can be a lot of grieving involved in this type of healing, both grieving for the childhood that you didn't get and also grieving for the image of your parent that has been shattered. 
As mentioned, growing up we only know what we know, and so when you grow older and realise that other children had a very different childhood from your own, you might feel jealous, hard done by and angry that you didn't get to experience this. You might have grown up protecting your parents or idolising them, only to realise that they have actually caused you some harm. This can be quite destabilising, and we may find that we need to grieve for the image that we used to hold for our parent. 6. Work through developmental milestones. It is very likely that growing up you missed some pretty important developmental milestones and now it is time to start experiencing them and learning. Now is the time to explore your own identity, to experiment with your sexuality, with dating, with choosing what you want to study and what you really want to do with your life. You will very likely have to learn to ask for what you need. You can start off small, like asking for directions, to learn how to identify your emotions which were kept buried for so long and to learn how to set healthy boundaries. Understand. Finally, it is important to understand and come to accept that your narcissistic parent won't change. As much as you might want to confront them, or as much as you do confront them, it is very unlikely that your parent will change their ways. Confronting a narcissistic parent can cause some quite big arguments in families, as mentioned earlier, a narcissistic will feel great shame and vulnerability that their perfect image is being penetrated. This can lead to them becoming extremely defensive and angry. It is also important to acknowledge and maybe even forgive your other parent. If one of your parents is a narcissist, it is likely that the other is an enabler. And by going along with and or excusing the narcissist's behaviour, enablers essentially normalise and sustain. Sometimes it's enablers who also assist the narcissist in their dirty work, condoning the perpetuating of abuse. By not naming the abuse and by not protecting their kids from it, enablers become complicit, even if they are also victimised by it. So now that we know what narcissistic parenthood looks like and what identifiers to look out for, how could these be transferred into traits we see in cult leaders and cult environments? Let's listen to Dee's interview and experience and see what else we can learn from her. Hi Dee and thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your story. We've been communicating over emails but today I get to speak to you. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to it. So, would you like to start by uh, telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, uh, your background, and what you're up to today? So, what I'm up to mostly today is um, a lot of intensive therapy. Um, but I grew up in a very strict, conservative Catholic family, um, and I guess our family was a little bit different in that we have an aunt who lived from around 1830s to 1905, who is in the process of becoming a Catholic saint. And, um, and our family was very dedicated to that, very dedicated to the Catholic church, very dedicated to living that lifestyle rather strictly. Um, and it was, it was kind of different because in our family, the priests were always correct. And if the priest said something, we did it. If we argued against the priest, that was cause for, um, some pretty harsh discipline at times. And, um, let's see, after, 
after growing up, I went into the Air Force where, where I joined the Mormon Church, I guess trying to find a way to have God fix what I was told was wrong with me um, because that wasn't happening in the Catholic Church. Then after I got out of the Air Force, I joined another group called the Bible Speaks, which was run by a pastor named Carl Stevens. I remember one of his sermons very vividly where he was saying, if you're raped and you survive, you have sinned because you did not resist unto death. Um, then I got in between there, I got involved in the Catholic charismatic movement, um, which is kind of a brand of Catholic Pentecostalism. And then last, my last attempt at Christianity was a, an evangelical church um, near where I lived that was also pretty severe, and they tried to fix me by doing an exorcism. Oh, oh my goodness. So, yeah, it's been an adventure. I left that. Um, eventually, um, I became a pagan. I had a radio show that I did for about 10 years on that topic. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy local to you. His name is Dave the Bard, Dave Smith. He's a good musician in the UK. Yes, yes, I have, yes. And let's see, how about Gary Andrews? I know they did a show about him on BBC. I haven't known that, not that name, but the first one, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, check out Gary Andrews. You might like him. Um, his wife died a couple of years ago, and he's been doing kind of a sketch a day. He's got a book coming out. Um, I can't remember the name of it right now. I've got it coming. But he's he's a great guy. He's raising his two kids now. They did a um, kind of a series of films about um, about life during, during COVID. But okay. anyway, I, as a pagan, I had a chance to meet and interact with a lot of really, really awesome people. Um, but... I guess I never really put things together um, about what was really wrong with, with my life um, until I was finally diagnosed with CPTSD and DID. Um, so that kind of opened the door to doing a bit of exploring. And then I was having some conversations with a friend of mine um, kind of in the midst of this meltdown and um, she had grown up in her whole family was involved in, in a cult on the east coast of the U.S. and um, started realizing that our lives were almost and there were some differences but they were very 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 much alike um, and what kind of got me thinking that, okay, maybe I had been involved in the cult as we were sitting one day and I just had this really uncomfortable feeling just because we were too close. And she just looked at me and said, it's okay. I grew up in a cult too. And then I, I, I used to think that, well, the Catholic church is obviously not a cult. Um, hadn't really considered Mormonism as a cult the Bible speaks as a cult, and I started looking into things um, a little bit deeper. And there was this one court case involving the Bible speaks 
So Carl Stevens was well known for being, you know, for uh, liking to have the women in his office, et cetera, et cetera. And this one woman in the church had donated $68 million. Oh, wow. And he bought a piece of property out in Massachusetts. And that became the church headquarters. So she realized at one point that she had been manipulated, took it to court, and the judge declared it the, the worst case of clerical misconduct he had seen. Um, so she wound up getting her money back. He moved the church down to Baltimore, and that's still going on. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of behavior right there, okay, that was at least your second cult. And then this other church where they did the exorcism, I realized, okay, that was the third cult. And my entire life after childhood was basically cult hopping. Okay. So that got me looking at not the Catholic church as a whole, but at least the way my family lived Catholicism and trying to understand that and, and realizing at some point that, okay, that is actually a cult. It's a very small cult. It doesn't, it's not like um, the, you know, Jesus army or something like that, but the behavior of the family, when you, when you mix a high level of narcissism into with religion, what do you have? Can, can you just explain to me, um, I don't want to talk too much about your aunt because like, this is your story and I know right. that she has influenced your family so much. Um, but how does somebody become ordained as a saint? What, what does that, do you know what that process looks like? Yeah, so basically what has to happen, if, if you look at a number of them, there's, I think there's about five steps um, involved. Um, I guess there, there are different ways to do it depending on, depending on who the person is, depending on when in history it happens right now. But, um, right now she is, she is what's called venerable and venerable means that the church has looked at her life and decided that, okay, there's cause there for people to actually pray to her. Okay. Um, so it's like one step on the road to sainthood. Um, then I think what, what the family was looking for was to have at least a certain number of miracles that would cause the church to say, okay, this actually happened. And yep, she's officially a saint because obviously if these good things are happening, then she has some contact with Jesus or whatever, um, to, influence these outcomes okay and and um you mentioned that there are actually a few spots that people can go to and worship specifically your your aunt it's it's not so there there are a number of monasteries to her i've actually never been to one that just kind of freaked me out um so i didn't go but there are monasteries i know there's um the mother house is in St. Hyacinth in Canada. There are, I know there was one in Lafayette, Indiana. There was one 
in Portland, Maine. There's one in Manchester, New Hampshire. There's another one in Japan. Japan. I think there's another one down in the Caribbean. Um, so there, there's quite a few of these monasteries around. I don't know if they're open to public. They may be, I, I wouldn't expect they are right now, if they are at all. I know my parents have been, um, and they were able to get some relics and medals and literature and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned to you finding the, um, the, 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 the small statue on eBay, which, yeah. you can, which is something that you can buy for £3,000 um, yeah. just to be able to worship your aunt. So I can't imagine how strange that must be. And you also mentioned that if you were to go to one of these places, you'd be treated very well. <laughs> that's what my parents told us yeah that we'd be welcome this is our this is her comic book oh she has a comic oh wow she does yeah this is you can oh wow that's so interesting that's is yeah, that like that... who who is this somebody that that worships your your aunt that's decided to to write these comics well, this was, it's called Great Moments in Canadian Church History. They have um, a number of books about various people um, who were part of the church. There is, yeah, I mean, we can't leave the Jehovah's Witnesses alone. To having oh my paper. goodness. That's, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. That's, that's, so I can't even imagine I don't even think I know someone who knows someone who knows someone who's in a family of somebody who's going to be ordained a saint, but you know, <laughs> here we are, here we are. So, um, I just wanted to mention, um, I just wanted to mention your aunt briefly because I know that I think her position or her status has had a lot of influence over perhaps the way that your parents were whilst you were growing up. Um, so, was it just yourself and your parents in the house practicing Catholicism or was, was there more of you in the family? So I think this was more a generational thing. Okay. When, I, when, I look, when I look at my aunt, I look at the way she was raised. And um, there's a number of books about her. This is, here's a small stack. I've got a few more. Um, this one, Onali Kawat from Ukari's um, anyways, yeah, so basically a woman with overwhelming um, charisma. Um, this book is available in French and English, if you can find it. But when I read her story, her family was very much like the family that I grew up in. So it was okay. kind of um, a generational devotion to the Catholic Church. Uh, but the one thing that she valued above all was suffering. So um, when she was young, she would burn her arms and her shoulders. Um, she would whip herself with an iron chain. She would wear a cilice that would actually you know, puncture her skin um, because she wanted to suffer um, for, you know, I guess, to help out Jesus in, convert, in the conversion of sinners. Okay, um, and when you talk about um, your family sort of... Um, almost mirroring the way your 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 aunt grew up and and you mentioned that your parents inflicted a lot of discipline as well were they using the same types of, of measures um 
No, in our family, it was mostly you know, a leather sha shaving strop to, to sharpen shaving blades or whatever, um, rulers, paddles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there was not a lot of decent medical care. Um, I didn't find out until... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A couple of years ago that I had asthma, and then I realized these symptoms that I had all my life were just, um, they were asthma. And, oh, how do I explain it? Um, basically, if you didn't have a fever, you weren't sick. If you were going to the doctors, you were inconveniencing the family. So um, it would be, uh, if, if you're complaining about something for a long time, uh, what we'd hear was, well, if the doctor doesn't find something wrong with you, there's going to be hell to pay. Okay. So do you feel like you were almost conditioned not to complain about anything, even if Absolutely. there was, yep. okay. And, and the same thing goes on today. It's, you know, if, if that's, that's a really hard habit to break. Um, all of us, every one of the kids in the family kind of developed this, way to you know, a very high pain tolerance um, just because you lived with something for so long and then you kind of think that oh if I go to the doctors I'm just complaining so okay. it's you know it was never this kind of thing where oh nothing was wrong that's a good thing no it was something wasn't wrong so you were wasting our time and how many children were there in the house altogether four so there was yourself and three brothers three brothers so that's um that's a that's a very boisterous household it could be and um are you the are you on the older scale or the younger side i'm the oldest you're the oldest okay okay do you feel like you ever had the the, the brunt of of more responsibility or, or anything given you're the oldest? I don't know because I don't have a whole lot of childhood memories. Okay. So, um, yeah, there's, yeah, I, I just, I don't remember. I don't remember really much of anything before about first grade. Okay. So I don't, re I have like a few, just a very few memories. Like I remember when my parents came home with my youngest brother, um, but um, there was, yeah. Um, one, one form of discipline the family had, and this is something that I do remember from those years, is um, just threats of abandonment. Okay. So my, I was either five or six years old. My brother would have been about a year younger than me. And for whatever reason, we weren't doing 
what our parents wanted, so they drove us to the Catholic orphanage and told us to get out of the car. Oh my goodness. That must be absolutely terrifying as a young child. I would expect. And yeah. was this something that happened a lot? The, the, the threats? Oh yeah, that, that continued for quite a while. So that might happen. Um, my parents might, you know, one parent would leave the house and we'd be told, okay, well, your mom's not coming back because you're terrible kids. Oh, that's awful emotional manipulation. That's terrible. So there's four of you, there's four children in the house and you're with your two parents. What, what does an average day or week in your church look like? So it really depends whether it's school season or not. Um, but you know, while school's in session, get up, get dressed, go to Catholic school. Um, <clears throat> and you, know, you have to say your prayers and breakfast and that sort of thing, naturally. Um, and then it really, it also depends on the time of year. So during Easter season or Holy Week, there's a whole lot going on in the church during those times. We were also all altar servers. <clears throat> so um, depending on the day, we may have to, you know, take, take part in those services or whatever. There were uh, fairly often um, First Friday observances where um, this was, I guess, one of the prophecies of Mary or something, who one, is it um, Our Lady of Lords? I don't remember which. But it was one of Mary's promises that if you attend, uh, attend services on the first Friday of each month, I think it was for nine consecutive months, then you kind of automatically get a pass to go to heaven unless you've been like really, really bad and then break that or some stupid thing. I don't know. But there's, there's a lot of really strange things that most Catholics don't ever know about their own church. <clears throat> okay. Do you have any examples? So the first Friday was one. Um, there are a number of, um, I think most people would be surprised to know that the Catholic church actually still does have indulgences. Um, which was one of the things that Martin Luther, well, what he really didn't like was the sale of indulgences. So the Catholic Church doesn't sell them. But basically what an indulgence is, is if you do something special, the Catholic Church is going to say that you get certain time off in the period of purgatory. So basically you've done some atonement in your life through this practice so it's kind of time off for good behavior because they believe that um, after you die, you still have not been sanctified enough to get all the way into heaven. So there is this purging period where your sinfulness is kind of purged away. And that takes a certain amount of temporal time. And by doing special things, you can gain indulgences, which take that time away from the purification process before you go to heaven. Wow, this is fascinating. I had no idea about any of these things. 
I think a lot of Catholics don't, but it's all part of Catholic tradition. And when you grow up in a very strict Catholic family, this stuff gets more important. I had, I found an, a uh, papal indulgence that was granted to my grandfather. So I had that framed <clears throat> um, quite a few years ago and that's in my parents' house right now. Do you, do you still speak to your parents or are you not in contact? Um, occasionally I do. Um, but I guess as I've been learning more, that's, I've, I've become a little bit more distant. Um, and they, they really kind of stopped treating me the same after I left the church. Um, it's, it's been kind of hard, you know, when there was one time um, I found out my mom was in intensive care in hospital uh, on Facebook. Oh, oh my goodness. So it's from, from a, another member of your church or a, another family member, another family member. Right. So they, they, they just didn't think to contact yeah, no, you to no, tell you. Okay. Yeah, no phone calls or anything like that. So years ago, when I was still kind of a faithful member of the church, um, if something was wrong, I would get a phone call. Hey, can you help out? I remember once my dad injured his leg, so I took him to the hospital. And, you know, that, that kind of thing was normal. But now I'm not in the church, so it's like, and it's still uncomfortable going to their house and seeing um, priests there and things like that who, I mean, that, that was standard fare growing up as well, was um, they really felt a need to be close to the clergy. That's one reason we were altar servers. Um, I actually had to pretty much um, beg my parents to stop being an altar server and join the music ministry. Um, I kind of got the impression they wanted their kids to be out in the front of the church where everybody could see them as opposed to being off to the side. Um, doing the music mm -hmm. okay so it's the priests that lead or, or led sorry your congregation yes and and do they have rules they have rules that are specific to their church or do they follow do they follow catholicism sort of as a, as an overall so that's kind of interesting too because the priests have some liberty in in the way the church um, practices Catholicism. So they could decide, okay, we're not going to have a music ministry, period. And you wouldn't. Um, they can decide, um, <clears throat> you know, what, say, the parish council or something like that might look like. They can decide you know, when to have or not to have services. Um, so so they're, they're given quite a bit of leeway. So um, it's fairly frequent in the Catholic Church where you'll be growing up with one priest leading the church, then another one comes in and pretty much everything changes. Right, okay. So okay. the way the services are done, there's still the same basic elements of the Mass. You can still find a missile that will say these are the steps, but the whole tenor of 
of the church can change depending on a priest's personality. Okay, and how much influence did the priests have on your lives outside of the church? That was, <coughs> excuse me, in our family, that was very, very significant. Um, so when I was in school, the priest could come and grab me and say, hey, you need to help me out at the church. And that was okay. Um, at, you know, according to my parents or whatever, they, they could have, they could have um, prevented that if they wanted to. Um, in our particular family, one of the priests who my parents were very, very close to um, decided, hey, you guys need to redo your kitchen. Uh, I'll go pick out some cabinets or whatever. We're going to get rid of these two walls. We're going to put a chimney for a wood-burning stove here, etc. So he, um, he decided where we were spending our weekends. It would uh, very often be up at his camp on a lake. Um, and yeah, so if, if he wanted something, my parents were so dedicated to the church that he could run the entire family. That's a really interesting point for me because you pointed out that your parents wanted to live very modestly and they didn't like money. But that's right. a lot of renovations, taking down walls in a house. That's, that's, not, that's not a cheap job. Oh, it is when you do it yourself. You don't, okay. you don't hire an electrician or anything like that. It's just, yeah. Okay. And what, what other um, examples can you think of off the top of your head where your parents were very strict with the money that they spent? So um, one example, I guess, and this took me a while to figure out because I was wondering why my parents didn't have more than they than they did. Um, so I had another aunt who owned an apartment building and she was just going to give it to my parents uh, with the only stipulation that would, being that she would live there until she died. And my parents said no. And I, I, I don't know if it was just fear of money or I know that my mother was going to be a nun at one point and my dad just kind of pursued her okay. and she eventually gave in and, um, and didn't become a nun, but she was, she had entered the novitiate, which is kind of like this study period before you take final vows. Okay. Um, and you know, the, the vows that you take as a nun, um, at least in the order she was looking at are for, you take a vow of poverty, a vow of obedience, a vow of chastity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that's been very much a theme in, in the family is to kind of live simply, simply and not have a whole lot more than you need. Okay. So. And in terms of the discipline that your parents used in your household, was there any type of, of strict discipline or rules within the church that you were supposed to follow? So in Catholicism, you have, uh, you know, some basic rules you have to, um, I think we did confession at least monthly. Um, 
you have the rules regarding um, you can't uh, consume food for a certain amount of time before you receive communion. Um, you have to receive communion. Um, you, you have to go to mass. If you don't go to mass, that's a sin. Um, you absolutely have to go to mass on holy days of obligation, which would be things like um, All Saints Day, Christmas, et cetera, et cetera, Easter. Um, and you know, that it's kind of a major sin if you avoid going to mass. You can't receive communion if you have uh, some unconfessed sins. So, um, what would be the um, approach of um, of church members if you were to commit any of these sins? So, um, there, depending on the parish, when I was growing up, there would be a lot of judgment. Um, you know, you could hear someone saying, what is that woman doing going to communion when she, you know, is divorced or things like that? So there, there would be a lot of judgment um, against people. So the, the priests have, um, or at least some of them, have a lot to, to, of influence over your parents outside of the church. What about um, sexuality and partners? Is that something that the the priests had a say over, or was that something that your parents controlled? So that that's kind of interesting because, um, and I don't know if I'm trans because of trauma because I have a DID or not. I have no idea, but I know that growing up, I was transgender, and I knew this since I was about four years old. Okay. Um, I remember telling our parish priest once and the answer I got from him was, you're going to hell, period. Um, so I didn't have, I guess, the kind of common experiences in sexuality that other children might have um, because I really wasn't interested in anybody because I knew I was going to hell because of who I wanted to be. Right. Um, I knew that it was a sin to be gay, and I figured, okay, if I was a boy and I like boys, I'm going to hell for that. I'm going to hell just because of who I am. Um, I know that my father wanted me to be interested in girls. Um, because obviously he didn't want a child who was a sissy or whatever. Okay. Um, so the experience was very, very different from, for me than it was for my brothers. Okay. And have you spoken to your brothers about your experiences? Yeah. And so one thing that I found out is that my uh, father would kind of interrogate my brothers about my sexual activity and whether or not I'd had any yet. And um, there was a lot of time trying to figure out how to get me like hooked up with a girl or something. Um, there, I was often pushed towards um, another girl in our church. And I think our two families, she, she turned out to be um, lesbian. And I think our families were kind of conspiring to make that happen and it just wouldn't. So 
I mean, if any of your brothers would have had sexual intercourse out of wedlock, that too, I'm, I'm guessing, would have been seen as, as a sin within the church. More so by my, it, it was definitely a sin in the church. Um, my mother would be very, very, very disappointed. I eventually married thinking that, okay, maybe this will fix me. And that whole relationship is kind of unique also because my uh, former partner um, is a prison guard. Okay. So um, much more masculine than I ever was. But we got an apartment together before we got married and my mother was hugely disappointed. So that, that kind of thing bothered her. My father's attitude was very different. Um, so. So did, did your mom have an, any idea of the, the, the lengths your father was going to, to get you interested in, in girls? I don't know. Um, it, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You wonder whether he he's obviously he he's thinking that sex outside of wedlock would be better than to have a, a no. trans child. Yes, which is conflicting. That that in itself is so confusing, and I can't imagine how difficult it must be for anybody who's part of the LGBTQIA community to approach family and have those conversations. Anyway, let alone under the circumstances you're under with the constant shaming and threats of abandonment and, you know. When I first came out as trans to them, um, you know, when I first said, I, I don't see myself as a boy. Uh, my father's comment was you're sick. And uh, they threatened to put me in the state mental hospital. So again you know the threat of abandonment for being different and what about your your clothing or the way you tried to identify as you were growing up was that was that controlled as well yeah. as, especially so, as a trans child if i if i managed to get some clothing that i liked that would occasionally just disappear if they thought that I was wearing underwear that was less than masculine, I remember once as a teenager having to strip in front of my brothers to prove what I was wearing was appropriate. And I have also made a note here as well that you were never allowed to grow your hair long. Right. Because boys don't have long hair, period. Were you at least allowed time to socialize with friends did you you know did you have anybody that you could speak to about any of these things um it's taken me a while to even begin understanding so as a child the idea of being transgender not wanting to be that was just it was not spoken of um even in our schools the schools were actually sex segregated all right okay so um yeah, it was it was an interesting childhood. And you're going to Catholic school and then you're going to Catholic church and then you're going home to a house with very devout Catholic parents. Yes. Did you have any awareness of, of anything outside of Catholicism whilst you were growing up? I knew there were things outside of Catholicism. I knew that if you're an atheist, you're necessarily evil. It was also a sin at that time to attend services of another church. 
um, and you really, really, really didn't go to communion if you did find yourself in another church because you can't have that foreign communion. Um, Catholics believe something very, very different about communion from most other Christian churches. In most Christian churches, it's believed that um, the, the grape juice and the bread are a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. But in Catholicism, there is this belief that it is literally the flesh and blood. So when the priest says prayers over, over the communion wafer and over the wine, there's this thing called transubstantiation. And what that means is that while the appearance is still bread and wine, the substance, I believe that was um, from Aristotle, he um, posited the idea that objects have substance and accidents, and the substance is the essential nature of a thing, and the accident is, um, is its physical appearance. So You're they just teaching me so much right now. I'm just learning so much right now. This is fantastic. So, yeah, in Catholicism, through transubstantiation, that means the substance has changed as the priest is praying over these objects, that the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ, and the wafer, the communion wafer, literally becomes the body of Christ. So when, when a Catholic receives communion, they know that what they are receiving is the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, that happens in this miracle that happens every time a mass is said. And um, I know somebody else in my family, I'm not going to say who right now, but actually told me that they had a miracle happen where they saw the wafer turn into the flesh of Christ in their hand. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? I, I would be sceptical and ask whether that person had had enough sleep. But that's just me personally. Yeah. And um, that's, I guess that's another thing that happens when you grow up in a family where, um, you know, you have an, one of the miracles my aunt did was when she was, I think, about five years old, um, she went into the upstairs of her house to get something and didn't come down quick enough. So her mom looks, goes to the stairs and sees her daughter floating down the stairs without actually touching the steps. And that was, you know, her mother said, how, how often does this happen? Oh, it happens a lot. And it's happened ever since I said, a, she said she climbed the stairs on her knees and said a Hail Mary prayer on each step. And since then, she didn't need to step down. She could just float down. Um, so this whole thing of miracles happening, um, that was kind of commonplace in our family. That's why we were supposed to pray to the aunt so that she could get the required miracles and we'd be witnesses of it to the church. And were you, were you told or led to believe in your church that you were the, you were the, ch the chosen people, you were the, the special people of earth? 
so that is another kind of fundamental belief of Catholicism. Okay. Um, when I was when I was growing up, it was if you were Catholic, you were going to heaven, and nobody else was. Okay. Um, they have since revised that position, and their position now is that all salvation comes through the Catholic Church. So if you're a member of another faith, you can still be saved, but it's through the Catholic Church that this is happening. Right. Okay. Okay. So just just wrong. so that I can understand this, if if I was if I was say for example, if I was Wiccan and yeah. I was saved, that would be because the Catholic Church had saved me. Yeah, so Jesus' salvation comes through the church. I don't know what mechanism they're proposing, if any. Okay, okay. But that's, that's their attitude. Is, and when you spoke to your friend who also grew up in a cult, did she ever mention that she'd also been told that their group was special and important too? Yeah, yeah. so hers was kind of a doomsday cult. They had a predicted date for when the world was ending. Um, and yeah, she she grew up knowing that all of her friends who weren't in the church were doomed. That's a very common theme, I think, isn't it? In, in, mm -hmm. uh, in cults and um, I think it's control through fear. You know, if you sin, you're going to hell. Um, if you leave the group, you're, you're not going to be saved from doomsday. Um, that fear is incredible. So according to the Catholic Church, if you accept the gift of salvation, um, that necessarily comes through the church. If you walk away from it, then you're actively rejecting that gift and you're doomed. Um, period. So I just wanted to go back to something you mentioned before about... Um, you you leave you you um, managed to leave the altar service to take part in the musical side of the church, mm -hmm. um, but you had no support or help from your parents. You had to save up for your guitar. Right. How how was that experience of being able to actually engage in something that you you were really interested in yourself? So um, that actually, the music part meant a lot to me. That was, that was very, very huge. Um, I think one of the reasons was when I was an altar server, it was all boys. When in the music ministry, it was a mix. So that got me, I guess, a little bit closer to like outside of an all male um, kind of thing going on in the church. So that part was huge. Um, and I, music has, at least since then, it's been very, very, very important to me, but it almost got me back into a church recently. And I found that really interesting. Um, just this one piece of music by this guy named Pepper Choplin. Um, and it's a very simple song called We Are Not Alone. And I was looking at, you know, I heard that piece of music and I was kind of entranced and 
it led me down into a rabbit hole where I almost um, joined a Mennonite church fairly recently. So there are some liberal Mennonites. Everything I looked at in this church said, no, we are definitely not a cult. Um, they're extraordinarily progressive. They don't require anyone to believe anything. Um, you know, there's no creed or anything like that. Um, so, and they've been pro-LGBT since 1964. Wow. That is, that is progressive. Yeah. So, but it, it took me a little while to realize that what had happened was I heard that piece of music and I was triggered again. And um, it's, it's taken me a while to separate it because if, it, if, they're, if the church hadn't been told, telling me that I was absolutely going to hell, um, I would still be in at least some church doing music. That, that was the most important part of the church for me. But I also realized that that music has been used as a tool um, to manipulate other members of the church. And that was pretty hard to accept. And do you remember the day that you were able to actually go out and buy your guitar? Um, I remember where I bought it. Um, and it's kind of funny in, in the U.S. Um, he... The, the shop still had music with, or still had, he still had a, um, a stamp where you purchase things and it had kind of the letters instead of the first two digits of the, um, of the calling area. So, you know, it could be like, you've heard the sign Pennsylvania 6, 9,000 or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Pennsylvania stood for PE and um, that was how you remembered um, which exchange you were calling was, oh, it's Pennsylvania, so you don't have to remember the number. And his shop, when I bought my guitar, he still had um, his phone number listed that way. And did you, but, did you learn how to play that guitar? <clears throat> I learned um, from another member of our church. And, um, yeah, and then just started playing and I, I think I'd been playing in churches for at least 30 years and that continued even afterwards I would play at um, like some uh, pagan gatherings and things like that. Okay and when you when you spoke about um, potentially joining a new church um, and then reading up about them do you think you would have to do thorough research before you before you thought about joining another movement? I don't think I could anymore. Um, what I realized afterwards was when I was looking at this church, I knew that I did not believe, period. Um, and I was wondering if I could get to the point again where I would, and then I just realized that that would be totally artificial. Um, so you've lost your relationship with Jesus altogether? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see absolutely no reason to believe anymore. And, you know, I don't know, I don't think that's a deficit in me. I just think it's you know, the reality of things. I guess it's pretty common for Mormons too, when, um, when many people who are Mormons leave that church, 
um, they, they tend towards atheism. Um, part of that, so this was an interesting technique. <clears throat> when, I was, when I was looking at the Mormon church, I was in the Air Force and um, their process is, is kind of interesting. So you first meet with some missionaries and they will tell you that you know, they, they believe that Joseph Smith was a prophet and he translated this book that he found on these golden plates. And they'll get you to read the Book of Mormon and with the expectation that if you read this book, you will feel something. So that's kind of planted at the beginning. So naturally, if you read this, with the expectation that you're going to feel something, they call it the burning in the bosom, um, you're going to feel something. And that is supposed to be the Holy Spirit testifying to you that the things that you're reading are true. So that's step one. The next step is, okay, well, you believe this. Are you ready for baptism now? So when you go for baptism, one of the things that you learn is that this baptism basically wipes away any other baptism you might have had. Um, another lesson that they're going to teach you is that there's only two possible churches that are ordained by God on earth. The first one would be the Catholic Church because they've been around since the time of Christ and the Catholic Church was founded at Pentecost. Um, the only other possibility would be that God had restored his church on earth, and that's the Mormon church. So either one of those two is true or nothing is true. So when you have that mindset and you leave the Mormon church, it's really hard to leave with a faith that there is some other true church. Okay, yeah, I, I see what you mean. I'm going to end the first part of my interview with Dee here for the time being but I have uploaded the second part at the same time, so it is available now if you'd like to listen to the conclusion. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do so by emailing me at coltvaultpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram.com at coltvaultpod. You can also support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash thecoltvault for exclusive monthly content. I'm your speaker Casey, and this is The Cult Vault. <laughs>